0: Hello and welcome to the Plato's Academy Center podcast, where we feature modern day academics, authors, and influencers that promote philosophy as a way of life. Be sure to check out our events page at platosacademy.eventbrite.com to stay up to date on our latest virtual conferences. We're covering so much territory here. We're saving the West, we're saving civility, we're saving rational discourse. And it's my honor to talk about how we can save the city and ultimately ourselves. So that's the topic of my discussion today and a very stoic endeavor, because when we think of uh, incivility and toxic discourse in the public square, our minds most often turn to, you know, distant political actors or party politics that can be far away from us or Twitter culture wars. When reality it's, you know, the stoic principle is to be mindful and focused as we've heard from our previous speakers on what's within our sphere of control. And each and every one of us can determine the way we show up in our own cities, in our own communities, whether it be as a citizen or as a civic leader uh, to enhance civility and rational discourse. Besides, as we've heard, this is where Plato and the ancient philosophers focused most of their attention on, on the city, on the polis, arguing that the city that's governed well is one that's governed in accordance with reason because we're human beings, we have this reasoning ca- capacity, this capacity to organize together. And it's through rational discourse that we can actually govern well in accordance with reason, not through factionalism, not through ad hominem attacks, not through rage farming and, and, and rumors and malicious gossip, you know, black propaganda campaigns. These are seen sometimes today as, as, as a reasonable or rational strategies. Indeed, they're not, not if you want to govern your city well. And it is rational discourse that helps us establish what is true, what is right, and what's in the common good. Our goal being also to elect people who are capable of this, which requires both skill and character and Even today, there wouldn't be a management uh, governance expert that would dispute this ancient view on the fundamental role of rational discourse in good governance, and it's good governance that is the key to sustainable community building and its opposite in civility, a toxic culture is its greatest impediment and destabilizing force. So in our brief time together today, I'm going to start for our first segment in describing some of the impacts of incivility are having on governance and operations in our cities so that we have a shared understanding you know, as citizens, as civic leaders, uh, how this really is a matter of public concern, not something that we can delegate to somebody else to deal with. And then I'll have some fun with it, taking some liberties. Imagine we could invite or like resurrect a council of these ancient philosophers to the present to diagnose our situation and advise us. As we've heard, you know, philosophers are simply lovers of wisdom. Sometimes we think that they're, you know, very esoteric, but in reality, they were like the management and governance consultants of the day. So it makes sense to hear what they may have to say. Furthermore, like why also look back? Because when it comes to the human infrastructure of city building, namely what it takes for us to live and flourish together in community, there really is not that much uh, new under the sun. And even today, the elaborate and costly studies that we do in the social and political sciences, as well as in neuroscience, most often confirm ancient wisdom on such topics, like whether it be the factors that lead to civic resilience, like social cohesion and trust, or new scientific studies on infants that prove that we are indeed inherently moral beings, surprise, surprise, or to the neuroscience of dialogical learning, which was championed by Socrates 2500 years ago. So we would not only do well to learn from those who came before us, but those whose thinking actually shaped the laws and institutions that govern our cities and local governments today. In my view, it is to our shocking detriment that we have inherited and that we inhabit these institutions while suffering from a kind of mass amnesia or like a memoricide, a loss of memory uh, about, about their history, which is actually rooted in the political philosophy of classical antiquity. And that being said, there are remarkable, ethical, wise and resilient public servants doing their best in our cities and institutions today. But if we as citizens and colleagues you know, if you are a civic leader, if we don't ramp up our understanding and do our part as far as when it comes to civility and rational discourse, the little bit of oxygen that these people have left for them to operate for the common good will be extinguished. Now, for the past five years, uh, after retiring as a city manager, I've been on a civility tour of local governments and communities, raising awareness about this growing incivility problem, and I really appreciate that spontaneous um, discussion between Anya and Donald this this morning because that's precisely the issue. When I first began the tour, there was a lot of widespread uh, denial that this was a societal problem. Uh, Very much wherever incidents of incivility or, or would occur, people would say they would imagine it was an isolated incident, or that the people involved were somehow personally culpable, and it was not not a matter of widespread concern. Um, Armed with my book, Save Your City, How Toxic Culture Kills Community and What to Do About It, which takes us on a journey from Bullyville to sustainable, I showed how, you know, incivility once unleashed spreads like a contagion and how, and and what are the lessons that we can learn in the journey by taking a stop at classical antiquity to sort of um, spare us from this impending civic dark age and help with the civic renaissance that we need today to restore uh, the strength of our institutions and civility. So what's happening today is incivility and the lack of rational discourse is having an enormous negative impact on our cities. I will share some statistics and facts uh, to ensure that we have a shared understanding with our resurrected philosophers who we will be speaking with. Uh, So, for example, you know, the United States has done a national study through the National League of Cities on levels of harassment and uh, abuse and violence. Uh, that that their elected officials are experiencing, yet yeah, this is not, this is very similar to the levels we see in the United Kingdom, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Canada, in many European nations, and, you know, it exists on a spectrum and sometimes ends into absolute, uh, you know, devastating violence, which we see in some, uh, you know, African cities, uh, in Asian cities, you know, Philippines. Um, But essentially, the the, the U.S. statistics are that 81% of local government officials have experienced uh, everything from, uh, you know, uh, death threats to vandalization of their homes and all forms of abuse. Uh, Remember, this is the level of government that's closest to the people. So that very proximity that we need that Spencer made so clear about, you know, where we start to weave back the social fabric, that very proximity in a toxic environment becomes a capacity to do enormous harm because everybody knows where their local government officials live and do their groceries and pick up their kids from school. Um, so this, of course, is having a very, it's deterring people from running, including experienced politicians. And I really enjoyed Kai's presentation on diversity because instability is undermining diversity deeply. Uh, the, uh, uh, those who are coming from marginalized groups are not going to want it, are less socially secure and are very much deterred from uh, engaging in the politics of the snake pit. And it's also fundamentally undermining local governance entirely. Elections by acclamation are on the rise everywhere. And we have many communities, many uh, wider jurisdictions that are failing to produce candidates at all. So uh, people are having to appoint people into government. Now on the other front is security everywhere. Local governments have had to armor up with costly surveillance systems, physical barriers, protocols, security details to protect both people and property from the very people that they serve. It goes even further. The need to protect neighbors from neighbors, many local governments now are having to introduce anti-bullying bylaws to deal with the rising animosity, the public shaming, malicious gossip, and other forms of hostility between neighbors. And of course, the very nature of policing and bylaw enforcement has had to change to deal with the rising uh, social disorder, violent crime, mental illness, seeing ever escalating costs that are det- that, uh, that are seeing uh, that are being diverted from other vital services like recreation and library services. And when we speak of rational discourse, the number of elected councils that are absolutely paralyzed by dysfunction, conflict, drama, unable to govern effectively is on the steady increase. This was, I mean, today there was a, you know, article on the two, two municipalities in my province that are at this point of complete uh, dysfunction, but it's it's the case that it's happening uh, absolutely everywhere. It was brought to the international public consciousness in 2021 when a 17-year-old political science student decided to post his local Cheshire, England uh, Council meeting, the Hanford Parish Council meeting, to Twitter, and it went viral to the shocked reaction of millions of people who had no idea that this is what's actually happening at the local level. When all was said and done, this one toxic council meeting uh, resulted, of course, in an investigation as is typically the response, you know, and this cash trap municipality had to pay more than its annual budget to conclude the investigation, which also resulted in the resignation of three of its members triggering, again, costly by-elections. And this shows the kind of modern inadequacy of the response that we have to these kind of incidents. We send in a team of experts, uh, you know, governance experts, lawyers, communicators, investigators, PR people, and, uh, and the, the, just like Sisyphus, the boulder is rolled up the hill, then rolls right back down a heavier load each time. And like I said, I wish I could say this is an isolated incident. It's absolutely not. It's a growing phenomenon. And this is just scratching the surface of the destabilizing and costly effect of incivility and lack of rational, rational discourse in our cities. Most fundamentally, and I think uh, Donald really got at this with his Festival of Cognitive Fusion, our very ability to collaborate and cooperate together to solve the complex uh, challenges our cities are facing is being critically undermined. And, And those challenges are formidable, they're ever increasing from crumbling infrastructure to climate mitigation, adaptation, homelessness, violent crime, the opioid crisis, all of these are reaching epidemic levels. The situation was further exacerbated by COVID, and now with the the fire, are on fire with rising inflationary pressures bearing down on cash-strapped municipalities. So the question we ask ourselves today, like how on earth can philosophy help save the city in this rising, uh, uh, um, in the face of this rising incivility? And I'm reminded firstly of the words of Nobel Prize winning physicist Ernst Rutherford, who at a critical juncture said, gentlemen. I'm sure he'd say gentlewomen as well today. Uh, We've run out of money. It's time to start thinking. Well, the ancient Greek and Greco-Roman philosophers did a lot of thinking about this, and they didn't just live the Vita Contemplativa in ivory academic towers. They had their finger on the pulse. They were out in the streets, in the marketplace, in the agora, some of them serving in government as statesmen, orators, military men, many of them as mentors to civic leaders. So of our resurrected philosophers, I think Socrates would start us off because, you know, we established he likes to chat and he was kind of like the patron saint of rational inquiry. And he would no doubt start by, again, pleading ignorance. All I know is that I do not is that I know nothing. And he'd throw the ball back in our court and ask us some kind of foundational question like, why does local government exist? Like, Why are you even doing this? And I think Aristotle would love this question. You know, he believed long before Simon Sinek popularized what really is the Aristotelian idea of the importance of knowing your why, that by establishing our why, the end or the telos of a thing, we can gauge if any action or condition is getting us closer or further away from achieving this end with excellence. And I've actually had the opportunity to ask this very question to civic leaders in many different um, jurisdictions, and invariably, and well, overwhelmingly, the most common answer to the question, why does local government exist, what is the telos of local government, the answer is, is a local government exists to provide city services or some quality or affordable civic services or some permutation of those words, like sustainable service delivery. Now, uh, you know, Spencer actually reflected on this a bit. Aristotle would definitely challenge this view. He would say that the telos of the city and therefore of the local government and its civic leaders has got to be people-centered, namely to achieve eudaimonia, like the, the, in Greek it means to be of good spirit, but it was often referred to in English as human flourishing or well-being. And I think Socrates would jump and he'd be super impressed with this student Aristotle of his student Plato, who he never actually met, but he would say, he would remind them as he did in the Republic that in the same way that it's the role of a shepherd to concern himself with the well being of the flock, so it is the role of a civic leader to concern him or herself with the well being of the people. So, by this measure, if the people are not well. If the people are not thriving and flourishing, then we're not achieving excellence in city building or in civic leadership, regardless of whether or not citizens are receiving certain specific uh, city services. And It's interesting to note that to this day, it is common to find the Aristotelian, eudaimonic view of the purpose of local government buried like a legal remnant of this ancient wisdom in the language of modern municipal charters that govern our municipalities today. You'll hear it stated like this, it will say the purpose of local government uh, by law is to provide for the social, economic, and environmental well-being of the people. That's human flourishing. That's far beyond the delivery of services. So these philosophers, I'm convinced, would be super impressed with those municipalities today, and they are a small but strong minority who have adopted well-being budgets, making every spending decision based on the contribution to the well-being of people. They may see this, in fact, as a sign of a civic renaissance, and I would certainly agree. But the further question is, if, what like, why is this philosophical shift in thinking so important to saving civility in the city? And the reason is that if the purpose of local government is simply to deliver civic services, then citizens and civic leaders owe each other very little. It is a purely transactional relationship. Citizens are reduced to taxpayers, which is very often what they're referred to today. Essentially consumers who put their taxes in and they get services out. So local governments reduced to a kind of vending machine. And just like consumers, they're not happy with the services and they kick the vending machine really uncivil, super harmful for the public servants who are receiving the kicking. And the trouble is that consumers, just like shoppers, they they only should be thinking in terms of their own self-interest. They have no obligation to consider the common good or future generations or competing community needs. Certainly no duty or responsibility to create or imagine, be accountable for, responsible for their neighbor or community. Their only job, really, is when you're buying something that you've paid for, is to rate, judge, and consume it. So this is a terrible debasement of the hard-won rights of citizens to freedom of speech, to assembly, to expression, and the right to vote. In fact, it's not citizenship at all. It's not even civil, because the very word civility comes from the Latin word civilitas, which means conduct becoming of a citizen. Shopping is not citizenship. Citizenship is not built on self-interest. It's built on a sense of shared belonging, shared destiny. It presumes a commitment to the well-being of the community, a responsibility to be informed, to act, to speak when necessary, and to conduct oneself in a way that positively contributes to the well-being of their community and neighbors. Now, in the transactional environments of today, civic leaders can more easily fall into what I would call a form of ethical fading, too often joining in that very same self seeking tribal and divisive behavior of some groups of citizens, especially if it can help secure votes in an upcoming election. Now, Plato would remind us of this ruinous dynamic on his ship of state, which he describes in book six of the Republic, describing the tragic consequences of the weak. who, and, you know, he says, inebriated captain bowing to the pressures of the sailors, who they themselves are divided one against the other. If we contrast this with the expectations of civic responsibility that are enshrined in the ancient Athenian oath, and recited by every Athenian citizen, this was a, which was a condition of, you know, I'll, actually, I'll, I'll say it out to you, the oath signed by, you know, agreed to by every citizen as a precondition of participating in the public square was, we will never bring disgrace on this our city by an act of dishonesty or cowardice, never deserting another. We will fight for the ideals of the sacred things of the city, both alone and with many. We will revere and obey the city laws and we will do our best to incite a like reverence and respect in those above us who are prone to annul them or set them at naught, so in other words, hold your leaders accountable. We will strive unceasingly to quicken the public sense of duty, thus in all these ways we will transmit the city, not only, not less, but greater and more beautiful than it was transmitted to us. Now, today, many local governments are implementing codes of conduct. In fact, it's become mandatory in, in, in many jurisdictions um, in an effort to combat incivility at City Hall. But there really isn't a city that has a universal code of conduct for all citizens, and it makes sense that that would be pretty impractical in the modern context. But even if there was an ancient the ancient Athenian lawmaker Solon, who wrote the foundational sixth century constitution at Athens, which incidentally aimed to address many of the same issues that we're confronting today around divisiveness, inequality, um, incivility, and abuse of power in society, he himself would remind us that we should put more trust in nobility of character than in an oath. In other words, you can't just legislate civility and rational discourse. Now, in addition to being a lawmaker, statesman, and a military man, Solon was also a poet. He spent his days reciting laments about the heart and soul of citizens, calling out the selfishness, the greed, envy, and ill will as, as the crimes to community that they are. Solon, if he was here today and saw the corporate marketers and social giants for whom greed, envy, vanity, narcissism, and addiction are harnessed and bred to fuel their profits, he would condemn these endeavors as criminal and toxic. In fact, the very word toxic comes from the ancient Greek word toxicon, which is related to the practice of an ancient archery of shooting poisonous arrows, toxicon pharmacon. So when people live in a community plagued by incivility, whose civic culture is toxic, they're essentially piercing each other with uh, piercing and poisoning each other. So the more arrows there are in play, the more toxic the community is, the more harmful it is, and the more unjust the community. And unjust is the operative word here. The ancient Greeks believed that the ideal city was the just city. And by justice, decausine, they didn't just mean the kind of justice administered by the courts, rather justice in human relations, which involved civil and ethical relations between people. Plato echoed Solon's view articulated a couple hundred years earlier on the importance of civic values and character formation in the citizenry. We are zoon politikon, social and political animals. We're always in relationship with each other. Our conduct either leads us towards chaos or towards community. It either tears at the social fabric or it leaves it together. It either builds trust and social cohesion or it erodes it. It either harms others or it leads us towards healing and human well-being. It's either ethical or it's not. And while there may be some gray, those marching directions are pretty clear. Today, in many jurisdictions, it is possible by fate or circumstance to serve on either staff or as an elected official in a local government without ever having had any real training in ethics or civic values, let alone the kind of mentorship or paideia that was envisioned by the ancient Greeks. And the same thing holds true for the citizenry participating in the public square, whether it be in person or online. And indeed, Socrates would point to this reality and remind us of his belief, which was later widely adopted by Stoic philosophers, that no one does wrong to themselves or others' voluntarily. Voluntarily. So if Socrates was here to witness our toxic political discourse, he would say that if we truly knew the right thing to do and possessed the ability to do it, we would, much like Jesus's words from the cross, forgive them for they know not what to do, what they do. If we understood our, inter- our interconnectedness, this stoic concept of sympatheia that Kai outlined so well, that by harming another, we're actually harming ourselves, we would instead behave ethically with civility and with justice. And our schools do not offer this type of uh, comprehensive civic education. The appetite and skills for civil discourse are not even cultivated. Yet it was Socrates who said that there is no greater evil one could suffer than to hate rational discourse. And we are suffering this evil today. There is no antidote to the individualism and the consumerism and the transactionalism that's fragmenting ethics and human relations and dominates our broken socialization process. Every political system is undergirded by a civic culture and ours is failing us. And finally, Socrates played with his life for the decline or failure of the Athenian civic culture after the death of the statesman Pericles from the plague 30 years earlier, ending the golden age of the city. The city descended from democracy ruled by the people into something more akin to a claucrosia ruled by the mob, where much like today, blame, shame, bullying, unjust political takedowns became the way that things beca- get done. Remember, it was the 500 Athenian citizens who sentenced Socrates to death, symbolically, wisdom itself, the city's albatross, on false trumped-up charges. The Roman emperor and Stoic Marcus Aurelius most succinctly sums up our lesson here today from his visit from the ancient philosophers. He said, endure the people, but educate the people or endure them. And that is exactly what a grief struck Plato, student of Socrates did upon the execution of its beloved mentor, declaring that the city is what it is because the people are what they are. So he cleared an olive grove, established Plato's Academy, the Western world's first university focused on character development, cultivating the heart and soul of citizens, refining the art of living well together. And he also sought to cultivate in the citizenry an appetite for wisdom, for rational discourse and good governance. So, how fitting it is that we're back here at this very same Academy, 2,410 years later, facing the very same issue. And we owe an enormous debt of gratitude to Plato's Academy Center president, Donald Robertson, Classical Wisdom, the entire team, and the many generous donors and supporters of this modern civic revival. And finally, yep, thank you. Are you trying to, um, do you have a couple seconds, Donald, or are we done? No, you can carry on for a couple of seconds. Okay, a couple more words. I just really want to end with this because um, in plato 's Republic he really, he clearly describes the role of the ideal civic leader, leader and statesman in the allegory of the cave. It is to lead us away from the tribalism incivility and shadows of the cave into the light of cooperation social cohesion, trust, and human flourishing. And I'd like to offer a modern day example of this because we see so little of it that we can't even imagine it. And this is one that we can all relate to, we can all witness, it's a three minute clip on the movie Invictus, I I encourage you all to watch it. It charts, uh, it's uh, where Nelson Mandela, newly released 27 years from prison at the hands of, of course, the murderous apartheid regime, arrives for his first day at the office as president of South Africa. And the existing government staff are of course terrified They served served in the previous apartheid government. Um, He comes in, he immediately asks his military detail, which he needs for his own security to stand down. He tries to remove all the fear from the room. He calls all the staff together and says to them that they must not have fear, that they must put the past behind them and to carry on in their service and urges them all that to, to, if they want to, to try their best and to continue to serve with a good heart. He promised to do the same. This is not what we saw from either, you know, as painful it is to accept either from the Trump or Biden administration on their first Address into the office, this is super significant because if you want to have an impact in your local community, one of the greatest destabilizing forces that 's happening right now is elected officials are getting elected and terminating their their uh, leadership staff whose very job is to be neutral and speak, speak truth to power it 's causing enormous organizational, financial, and ethical costs to your cities in my province alone. You know fifty percent of uh, over fifty percent in the last cycle uh, have been removed. And, um, and so it's something that we concrete that you can all kind of address. Uh, if It is only the servant leader, as Plato calls it, the philosopher king who has practical wisdom and a compassionate heart that can make this journey. It's much easier said than done, but it does remind us that if you wanna save your city, you must first save yourself and become that very same compassionate leader and citizen with a heart for one and all. Thank you.